Uh, Hutchinson, our pastor, senior pastor, Grace Community Church. And uh, we are so blessed to have a pastor who is bold and courageous and not afraid to tell us about the times we're living in and what's going on in the land and in the world. So uh, let's just stretch out our hands and pray for him as he, uh, as he comes to preach. Father, we pray right now that we will have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Open our ears tonight, God, and we pray that you will anoint Gary's lips, God. Just anoint him. Let the fire of God, the Word of God, just come like a double-edged sword, God, piercing us, changing our lives tonight, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks. Amen. You know, I've never heard that version of Revelation 4 before. I was kind of hard picturing the four living creatures doing a little rock and roll dance out there. So I'll try to get that part of it out of my mind here. But You know, I was just thinking about how we're so used to downloading things real fast. You know, we want to fast download, fast download. And, and how do you, I mean, how would you like it, you women out there, if your husband just wanted a fast download of conversation real quick? Let's get this over with. Let's just get this. Well, God, just remember, it's all about relationship. And we're, this, God's taking us somewhere. I just encourage you, just keep, just keep uh, patient through here because God has taken us somewhere in this conference. And Father, we trust you with that, and we do ask that you have your way in every heart in this room, in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, the only thing, most of you know this, the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them to do was to teach them to pray. And they didn't ask Jesus to teach them a prayer. They asked him to teach them to pray. Because they had already, they, they grew up there in Israel, and every Jewish boy was taught prayers. They had been taught prayers, but Jesus, they asked him, would you teach us to pray? And so you're familiar with this. Jesus teaches them to pray this way, Matthew 6, 9. Pray then in this way, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now remember, Jesus was asked the question, would you teach us to pray? And then he gives them this. This is not a prayer that he's given them. This is how to pray. This is a guideline for praying. This is a template, so to speak, on how to pray. But it's the end of this guideline to prayer that I want to focus on for a little bit this evening. Jesus says, pray then this way, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. So this is how you're to pray. You're to pray this way, for yours is the kingdom and Yours is the power, and yours is the glory. And 
The truth is, we have, generally speaking, we have a kingdom problem. Because in all honesty, I think we tend to think, but it's about my kingdom and my power and my glory. There's a book by Dr. Seuss called Yertle the Turtle. Any of y'all read that to your kids, Yertle the Turtle? It's a story about a little pond and a bunch of little turtles who are ruled, or so he thinks, by a king turtle named Yertle. And one day, Yertle, the turtle king, decides that his kingdom needs extending. I'm king, he said, of all I see, but I don't see enough. That's the trouble with me. So he began to stack up turtles to make himself a throne. So the king lifts his finger in a whole pond of turtles, first like a dozen stack up and then like hundreds stack up. Because in his mind, Yertle's mind, they all exist for his sake, for his kingdom and his power and his glory. And so he mounts the throne and says, I am Yertle the turtle, O marvelous me, for I am the ruler of all that I see. And he thought his throne was as secure as a throne could be. But in the end, as you've read it, know, his throne turned out to be a turtle tower of Babel. And it goes like this, and the turtle on the bottom did a plain little thing, he burped. And that burp shook the throne of the king, and today the great Yertle, that marvelous he, is king of the mud. That's all he can see. And that's just the truth about us, that some of us are obvious and bold, and some of us are sneaky and subtle, but the truth is, We all have that in our hearts to be kingdom builders of our own kingdom. It's my agenda and my comfort and my money and my success and my lifestyle and my achievements and my career and my opportunity and my security. And I just keep stacking the throne higher and higher. But the day day is coming. The day is coming for every, every throne to tumble but one. The day is coming when everyone who has stacked up their throne will find out that there's only one throne that's going to stand. There's only one king who's going to lift his finger and the whole world's going to get turned upside down. And we know that that one doesn't live in Rome. He doesn't live in Washington. He doesn't live on Wall Street. He doesn't live in Hollywood. The day is coming when every knee will bow. We know the verse, and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So one day the king's going to lift his finger, and a whole lot of kingdom builders are going to end up in the mud. Now, how many knees will bow? Every knee. Every knee. Now, so I want you just to picture this for a moment. I want you to picture all of humanity, starting with Adam, to the last person ever born. Every person is going to come to a place where they're going to acknowledge his supremacy. They're going to acknowledge that it's really his kingdom and his power and his glory. I want you to think about that for a moment. I really want us to have this picture in our mind. Every president 
who ever lived, every CEO who ever led a company, every movie star who ever graced a magazine cover, every billionaire who ever made a fabulous fortune, one day, every one of them is going to be on bended knee. Every one of them. And their tongues are confessed, <clears throat> Jesus as Lord. I mean, people that we know about right now that are sitting on some kind of throne are going to bow on that day. Oprah will be on bended knee before him. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton and Hugh Hefner and Bill Gates and Bill O'Reilly and Wolf Blitzer and Barack Obama and Vladimir Putin and Ayatollah Khomeini and Benjamin Netanyahu and they're all, all of them will be on bended knee. I mean, these that didn't even do much bending on this earth will bend on that day. Think about that. Napoleon will be on bended knee. Adolf Hitler will be on bended knee. Joseph Stalin will be on bended knee. I want you to think about Caesar Augustus. Remember the Caesar who sent out a decree that the whole world, there was going to be a census. Why? So he could increase their taxes. This Caesar, the one who Jesus entered into the world under his, on his watch, through a poor family in this little obscure village in this dusty part of his kingdom that Caesar never intended to pass through, Caesar's going to bow. Why don't you think about Herod for a moment? Herod, who, who put the word out that he's looking for this child, who gladly would have run a sword right through him, in fact, did kill many babies, trying to finally find the one he was after and kill him. Herod's going to find out one day that death really was no match for this one. And Herod's going to bow. Pontius Pilate, who didn't really want to do something wrong, but he really wasn't that committed to doing something right either, is going to find out that there comes a day you can't wash your hands of something anymore. Pontius Pilate will bend his knee. All the characters we read about, Pharaoh, all the Pharaohs will bend their knee. Goliath, Jezebel, Judas Iscariot, they're all going to come and bow their heads, and bend their knees. People went through their whole lives being bowed to are going to bow on that day. I really want you to have that picture in your mind. The person you live next door to is going to be on their knees and acknowledge that he's the Christ, the Lord. People you, that you work next to in the office or on the work site, the people you're sitting in class to in the next desk, they're all going to be on bended knee. Your parents... Your grandparents, your great-grandparents, all of them will be on bended knee. Some knees are going to bow under duress. Some are going to bow grudgingly and resentfully and stiffly, but they're going down. Some knees are going to bow voluntarily. They're going to bow in adoration. They're going to bow joyfully. And some knees are going to bow before the time it's required to bow. See, I, I'm convinced there's an end-time church that is going to be a praying church. An end-time church that gladly bows the knee before the required time, that gladly spends times like this confessing your Lord before the required time. There's going to be a church that has said yes to God, that to that prophecy Jesus made that my Father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. He prophesied it has to come to pass. So there's going to be a church that comes to believe that it's all about his kingdom 
It's his power and it's his glory. And I want you to think about that for a moment because we're trying to, we're going somewhere in this conference. But for us to pray, your kingdom come. When we're praying, we say your kingdom come. We're saying we want to see all things come under your rule. When we pray your kingdom come, we're praying your, your kingdom rule come. We want things under your rule. That's what we're praying. How can we pray that as a church if the very people praying it, hearts aren't submitted to his rule? Well, hold that thought. See, if we want to be those who can pray your kingdom and your power and your glory, and by the way, there's an important order here, and I'm not going to take the time to do that, but it's a really important order. People want the glory, but in order to have the glory, you've got to have the power, and if the power is going to come, it's got to be his kingdom. It's got to be under his rule. But if we want to be those who pray in his kingdom, power, and glory, then we've got to be people who totally submit to his kingdom rule, totally and radically. The prayers of the unsubmitted hearts, prayers of unsubmitted hearts make no difference. Here's what it says in Proverbs 28.9. It says, he who turns away his ear from listening to the law, even his prayer is an abomination. Proverbs 28.13, he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes him will find compassion. And so really starting out tonight, there's, there's this thing about it. If we really want to go somewhere in this conference, we got to be people who say, you know what, I, w- I am going to totally and radically submit myself to the rule of Christ. And so that means that I, I can't have any secret sin in my life. I can't have any secret sin in my life. I can't have areas in my life that I just, that are totally unsubmitted, that I've categorized and I control. I can't have that. So here's the truth I want you to think about, and that is this. I think it's the next slide. We are powerless to pray in his kingdom rule if we're unwilling to be under his kingdom rule. Now, every election, we hear a particular verse recited by many professing believers, 2 Chronicles 7, 14. Many of you heard it. Many of you have it memorized. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. And we're going to, this verse, we're going to hear this verse a lot between now and election time, national election. My question is, why hasn't that happened in America? Why hasn't God healed this land? Is it because we can't get people to go to a prayer meeting? Because I think there are millions going to some sort of prayer meeting. So that can't be really the answer. So why isn't it working? Why isn't it happening? Where's the breakdown? See, I, I believe that the breakdown is that the people who are called by his name refuse to humble themselves, seek his face, and turn from their wicked ways. Now again, seeking his face is key to turning from my wicked ways because if I really seek his face and I, and I get just more and more of a revelation of him and I fall more in love with him, it's a lot easier for me to look over my shoulder and say no to sin, right? So that, that really is a connecting. But I really do believe that, that more, if, you know, of course the question is why aren't more really seeking his face and truly turning from their wicked ways? 
What is the problem here? There are three things the Bible tells us to flee from. Do you know what they are? Let's go ahead and have a little participation here. Three things the Bible says flee from. What are they? Number one. Okay, immorality. Flee from immorality. Sexual immorality. Number two. Flee from the love of money. There's one more. And it's almost, and I don't, don't say it because almost every time I ask this question, someone says, the devil. <laughs> we don't flee from the devil, right? We resist the devil. He flees from us. So we flee from sexual morality. We flee from the love of money. And there's one more. And, and I've, I've never, hardly anyone ever gets this one. It's in your Bible. You flee from idolatry. You flee from idolatry. Now, we understand the first one. I flee from sexual morality because if I don't flee from it, I may rationalize it. Before you know it, I'm giving in to it. So don't even give yourself a chance to rationalize it. Get out of there. You know, and then you've got the one, then you've got flee from love of money, which is also, if I rationalize it, then I'm going to give in to it. So flee from it. Don't even give yourself time. The same is also true of idolatry. We tend to rationalize why it's okay for us to have other gods. We have him as our God, but we, it's okay to have other gods, and we've rationalized it. We haven't fled it. I'm talking about, I say we, I mean, I'm talking about the overall church in this country. The reason why more are not seeking his face and turning from their wicked ways is because of idolatry. I'm convinced of that. So I want to do this morning, I'm going to see, I want to look at a familiar story in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bibles handy, turn to Exodus 32, if you would. Exodus 32. And it's the story, of course, when Moses goes out to receive from God the Ten Commandments. Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. I just want to read the first part of it. Again, remember, Moses goes up to the mountain. He's going to go there 40 days and 40 nights. Receives the Ten Commandments, comes back down. You remember what he came back down to, right? Comes back down to they made a golden calf, an idol, and they are, they are having a big party around they're having a, dollar, a real time of worship of an idol. Okay, Exodus 32, verse 1 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, just stop there. Okay, so the Bible tells us he's gone for 40 days and 40 nights. He's at the top of the mountain receiving the covenant, he's receiving the commandments. And when he returns, they made an idol, they turned to another God. I want you to think about this for a moment, because these same people knew hard times. They knew hard times. They crossed the Red Sea. They knew what it was like to run out of water, remember, run out of food, have to wait on God to provide. They had hard times, and they complained during those hard times, but they never turned to idols during those times. What was it about this time that they turned to an idol? What was so significant about this situation that they would turn their attention and affection to worshiping another god? Well, remember, Moses was gone a long time. They began to fear that he just left them. He left them alone. They felt they were left by Moses, and they felt abandoned by God. As God's presence seemed withdrawn from them, their faith began to wane. And in response to feeling abandoned by God, in response to feeling like God's presence 
was withdrawn, they began to turn to something else. What sets us up for idolatry is the feeling that God's presence is gone. When his presence seems gone, when God seems distant, then we say, okay, I guess I'll take the God behind door number two. And I'm not asking you to show hands, but have you ever felt that way? You ever felt that God was just, I mean, where are you, Lord? His presence seems far from you. No matter how hard, hard you tried to reach out, you couldn't seem to find that. There's times where you felt his nearness and you're trying to find that again. And during those times, have you ever felt tempted to turn to something else other than God to feel that? Emptiness. Let me ask this question. When times of stress or fear or boredom or crisis come and God seems far away, what do you turn to at those, in those times? Exodus 32 is clear that God's people had a golden calf. Let's read all of verse 1. Exodus 32. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now when you read Exodus chapter 32, God's anger is burning. But his anger is not burning against the heathen because of their idols. His anger is burning because his people gave him up for an idol. Now, before you automatically conclude, you know, I, I could have skipped tonight because I know this message is not possibly speaking to me. I couldn't possibly be guilty in any way of idolatry. I want us to make sure we understand really what it is. I want to give you some characteristics of it, of idolatry, that we get from Exodus 32. The first characteristic, I'll give you four of them, is this. An idol competes with our worship of God. An idol competes with our worship of God. Verse 8 tells us that God's voice of punishment on the people was this. Verse 8, he says, they're quick to turn aside from me. They're quick to turn away from me and to worship another God. They're quick to do it. Do you know how to tell if you're guilty of idolatry? And that is simply this, that I'm giving my attention and my affection and my devotion to something else besides him. Something else in place of him. Something else ahead of him. Whenever we do that, whenever we're given our attention and affection, devotion to something ahead of God, then we're, we're really dissing him and we're, and we're really committing idolatry. In fact, whatever you sacrifice your best to, even at work, we're supposed to be doing our work unto the Lord, right? Whatever we give our very best to, if it is not God and we're giving something of our best to something ahead of him, then that's an idol. If I'm sacrificing, I'm making a sacrifice for something far beyond what I'd ever do for God, then that's an idol. If I sacrifice the very best of my free time, the very best of my free money, my free energy, to something above God, then it's an idol. I had a, a friend that had come to the Lord, and, and he was really grown. He was in a small group with me and some other men. And then he just stopped coming. And after, as he stopped coming, I... First, I'd call him and say, hey, man, well, you missed a meeting. We missed you. You're okay. And, and he would kind of give excuses. Finally, I just like, said, what's going on? He said, well, 
I got this amazing dog. And we are going on to dog shows. In fact, all the country, this dog is beating every dog. And the shows are on Sundays, and I can't come to Sunday. And during the week, I mean, I'm with the dog. I'm doing all this stuff for the dog. And I thought, well, he sure got that exactly backwards. D-O-G. <laughs> Hello, let's wake up, everybody. Okay, the second characteristic of idolatry is number two. Idols of the day reflect the values of the culture. This is important. The, value, the idols of the day reflect the values of the culture. The image of the calf was part of the culture of Egypt. The golden calf was valued in Egypt. And it was well known by the Israelites who spent, remember, hundreds of years there in Egypt. So the Israelites turned their attention to something that they were familiar with. Something that was valued and worshipped in the culture in which they lived. Something that made the heathen happy. Maybe it will work for them. See, when you, here's the deal. When we feel that God has, when you feel God has forsaken you, and by the way, when, when, when Tom gave that word about disappointment, I was thinking the very exact, exact thing. There, there is heavy disappointment in this room. And again, I'm not asking any show of hands, but there's, and even when we said, when Tom, when you said, you know, that he's not disappointed in you, God's not disappointed in you, I'm thinking, yeah, but there's so many people here that are disappointed in God. There's something you, you really expected from him, and it hasn't come the way you've asked, the way you've hoped. When we feel like God has forsaken you, here's the question, the problem is you become vulnerable to idolatry. And that idol that you're going to be tempted to turn to is likely going to be something that non-Christians in your culture are already worshiping. Something that already has the non-Christians' attention, already has their affection, already has their devotion. Okay, the third characteristic of idolatry is idols do satisfy, but it's short-lived. When stress or crisis or boredom creep in and we don't feel the presence of God, if we don't feel near to Him, if we don't feel helped by him, then we're vulnerable to an idol to do what? To numb the pain of the emptiness. We want to feel something. I mean, those feelings are planning an insurrection. You can stuff them down there, but they want to feel something. And if you're not feeling it with God anymore, you're vulnerable to, to trying to fill it with something else. And so we turn to one of the gods of our culture, working for them, so... We see if it works for us, and it does for a little while. Verse 32, I mean, chapter 32, verse 4 through 6, describes what the Israelites did around the calf. It said they molded it, they built an altar to it, they ran a festival around it, they partied, they sacrificed to it, and during that brief time, there was some relief. I mean, there was some satisfaction they were getting out of that moment. But the relief and satisfaction of idols is always short-lived. I mean, idols are deceitful imitations. So they take the place of God in our affections, our devotions, our attention, our allegiance. And we begin to try to find all our satisfaction in this, in what we're giving ourselves to. So we give all of our affection and devotion to, and it does give us some satisfaction. And there is some relief, but it's short-lived. So here, what do we have to do? You have to turn to it again. And you've got to turn to it again. It gives a little satisfaction, a little relief, but you've got to keep turning to it. And that's the essence of addictions. 
See, the essence of addiction is, is there, there is an addictive nature to idols. That's why you've got to flee from idolatry. There's an addictive nature to idols. They begin to assume the role that only God can fill and only God deserves. Fourth characteristic, so idolatry is idol. Idolatry is surrounded by rationalizations. This is real important. You listen to what Aaron said when Moses confronted him in verse 22 and verse 24 of Exodus 22. Aaron said to Moses, don't let your anger burn against me. You know these people. They're bent on evil. They said to me, what's he doing? He's saying, they made me do it. I didn't want to do it. In fact, it becomes comical in verse 24. He said, I threw the gold in the fire and out came the calf. You know, we laugh at that, but the truth is, our idols are wrapped in excuses. In fact, when you first began listening to me talk about idolatry, I think something popped in some of your minds. Popped in your mind, you thought, hmm, I wonder if that could be an idol. But already, as we've gone, you've already talked yourself out of it. You've already rationalized why that's not really one. I know that you, people do that because I've done it. So those are four characteristics of idols, and I believe that based on that, we can determine what some of the modern-day golden calves are uh, in our culture. And I want you just to consider if you're guilty of any worshiping any of these. First one, first idol, modern-day golden calf, is the, number one, the golden calf of cash and comfort. Now, I hear some of you saying, you're saying, all right, Gary, you got something against cash and comfort? And I'd say, compared to what? Compared to what? Poverty and pain? No, I'd rather take cash and comfort over poverty and pain. But compared to Christ? Yeah, I'd rather, do, I'd rather have Christ and what he wants me to do. I mean, don't you? And by the way, if you hesitate on that answer, or we permit cash and comfort to eclipse our commitment to Christ, then we're guilty of idolatry. When Judas betrayed Christ... He actually chose cash and comfort over Christ and what Christ wanted him to do. Judas was guilty at that point of idolatry. It sucked him in. What did it do? It promised to fill and satisfy him, and it left him so empty and ashamed. What did he do? He threw the cash on the ground and went and committed suicide. And I don't know about you, but I've thought about Judas a lot. I've thought about how could this have ever happened? How could this man who had lived with Jesus for three years... And he had seen what he had seen. He'd experienced all that he experienced. How could he have ever turned away from Christ? What was going on inside him for that to happen? What was it that made him vulnerable to this idolatry, to this betrayal? What was it? I think at least in part what was going on in Judas was that after all the sacrifice, and hear me out because a lot of you are intercessors and you've made a lot of sacrifices, and be careful. After all the sacrifice, after all the anticipation and what he thought Jesus was going to do, of course, in his mind, overthrow the Romans. After all of that, after all that hanging in there and sacrificing and adjusting his whole life around it, after all that expectations, he was disappointed. He was severely disappointed. What he would hope was going to happen wasn't going to happen, and he realized it. And that disappointment led him 
to a place of being vulnerable to idolatry, and he was sucked in by an idol. And that's why I believe that's an important word for tonight. If you feel disappointed by God, again, and I know some of us are thinking, I, you know, I, I may have that, but I'm, you know, it sounds unspiritual to say it. But if I feel disappointed by God, and this, this by the way, this has happened to this happens to thousands and thousands of intercessors. I've seen it. They have pushed and they have pursued and they have fasted and they have sacrificed and it didn't happen like they hoped. When it doesn't happen what we thought was going to happen or hope was going to happen, we're disappointed in God, we're vulnerable to idolatry. And what happens is, is you go to a place, that place where you have just delayed gratification and you delayed gratification, and you delayed gratification, and again, you delay gratification, and it doesn't come through like you expected, and at that point, you are vulnerable. You begin to think, okay, God, if you're not going to keep your end of the bargain, then I'm going to gratify myself another way. And cash and comfort are one of those idols that's promising some gratification and in all honesty, again, some of you are probably there tonight. In all honesty, just you're just thinking, man, that's where I'm at. I'm there. I don't want to be there, but I'm there. God's taking us somewhere tonight, so hang in here. Battle's real. Some of you are there, and God's going to change this tonight. Well, there's a second golden calf I just want to say a word about. Another golden calf is we tend to worship as self, body, or body, or just me. There's different components of this God, but it's always about me. It means that I live for me. I make decisions based on what my profit. My, my main concern is not Christ's profit. My main concern is my profit. In fact, you know, I, I like the fact that Christ will help me in my profit. But I'm not focused primarily about his profit. And that, again, is another form of idolatry. And, and another component of this idol is there's this preoccupation with outward appearance. So the altar becomes the closet and the gymnasium. It's about your focus being as attractive as the gym or the plastic surgeon or nice clothes can make you. So you spend your time and money. Everything's about looking as good as possible. And again, that too can be something that is a bit of an idol. A third one is this, third idol of our culture is the golden calf of relationships. There's another person in your life, real or imaginary, to whom you give an inordinate amount of time, energy, and attention. Even in the most satisfying marital relationship, we still ought to hunger for God above that relationship. I mean, I adore Tracy, I adore her, but I, ne I can never let my love for her compete with my devotion to God. None of us can. We mistakenly think that another relationship can satisfy us in a way that only God can. And by the way, this can happen whether you're married or whether you're single. In fact, there's people who have marriages that aren't good, and you begin to fantasize about the ideal spouse or even see someone else around that you wish was your spouse. And that, too, can begin to become an idol. It can turn to fantasy, and pornography fits in this category as well. In fact, it's interesting 
that the Promise Keepers men's ministry, they did a survey in one of the, one of the arenas, the sporting arenas, where they had 60,000 men coming. And they, asked, and they did a survey and asked that these 60,000 men who came to a Promise Keepers Christian men's conference, they asked them how many of them had viewed pornography that week. And over 50% said they had. So, you, you know, you, some relationships have become an idol, and even the fantasies become an idol. And people even sometimes slip into immorality trying to please that person who's become so important in their life that isn't their spouse. That's another idol. Let me give you just one more. One more idol of our culture that we're vulnerable to if we're not careful. And that's the golden calf of entertainment. A.W. Tozer wrote a chapter in one of his books entitled The Great God Entertainment. Here's a, here's a quote from this chapter. He says this, No one with common human feelings will object to the simple pleasures of life, not to such harmless forms of entertainment as may help relax the nerves and refresh the mind, exhausted by toil. Such things, if used with discretion, may be a blessing along the way. That is one thing. The all-out devotion to entertainment as a major activity for which and by which men live is definitely something else again. See, there's a difference between participating in some occasional form of, of, of wholesome entertainment that gives us a break from the intensity of the mission. There's a difference between that and entertainment, entertaining ourselves, becoming the mission. And my goal is just to, see, to entertain myself as much as possible. And I think in, in our culture, let's think about the biggest arenas in every city in and every major city in this country are not churches. They're not places people gather to honor and worship God. They are sports arenas, people going to gather for sport, people to go in to hear a singer, a band, but some type of entertainment. I want you to think about this. If, 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 I'm, if I'm spending, and this, and this, this, this actually describes a lot of, like Chris, if I'm spending 10 hours a week in video games, 20 hours a week watching TV programs, or five hours a week going to concerts and ballet and opera, and then I give God one hour on Sunday. I mean, one hour of my attention and one hour of my devotion, one hour of my affection, and I'm giving all these other things all my other time. Even if someone refuses to tithe, but gladly will bust their budget, you know, to go on a fun vacation, is that not also idolatry? So we got to watch out for the golden calf of entertainment. Well, here's how we break free of idolatry, because this is where I think the Lord wants to take us. He wants us to start off by saying, Lord, we just want to be people who have, are, are just, it's all about you. It's all about your kingdom. It's all about your power. It's all about your glory. I'm submitted to you. There's no, it's not you and all these other things. It's just you. You, Lord, have no competition with my affection. There's no competition, Lord, for, for my adoration. There's, there's no competition for my allegiance. So how do we break free from idolatry? Number one, here's what Moses did in Exodus 32. Moses burned the calf, ground it to powder, and scattered it in the water. There's nothing left of it. No trace. No way to get it back. That was the antidote. In other words, get rid of it. Radically get rid of the idol. That's how you flee from idolatry. You, you get away from the idol, or you get the idol out of your life. Whatever you got to do, you thoroughly rid yourself of the idol. I was talking to a guy one time that told me he's struggling with pornography, and I said, okay, where is it? Where's the pornography at? 
This is back before the internet was going on. He says, well, I got rid of most of it. I said, well, where's the rest of it? He says, well, it's in the trunk of my car. I said, let's go right now. We got to his trunk. He's got a stack of pornographic magazines that high in his trunk. So, all right, let's get it all out right now. I mean, and it, it was paining him to do this. I mean, he, it was, he was doing it, but you could tell him he was fighting it. But we got to get rid of what other idol is. I've talked to people more recently with internet porn issues, and I, and I talked talk to men, and I said, just stay off the internet. Just stay off it. One guy said, well, I, my job's, I'm on the internet with my job. I said, then quit your job. I mean, whatever you got to do to get this out of your life, there's something more important. We have to get rid of the idols. So Moses had a ground up, interesting, he had a ground up, then he throws the dust in the water and he makes the Israelites drink it. You ever wonder why he did that? I mean, we don't know for sure, but I think Moses is saying, okay, you think this fills your hunger? Go ahead, eat it. Drink it, see if that satisfies. That doesn't satisfy you. It can't. Only God can. So number one, we, get, we break free from. Number two, we then we pursue the forgiveness and cleansing. Interesting, chapter 32 ends with forgiveness and cleansing. And here's where we just need to be honest, stripped of rationalizations and excuses. We need to admit to God of any idol worship in our lives. Just admit to him, Lord, that's been an idol. That has been an idol. Admit it. Repent by getting the idol out of your life. And then 1 John 1, 9, just confess it to him. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I tell you, we, we're starting this, I want to start this prayer conference with a time of just cleansing. Just forgiveness, just cleansing, just being single-minded, single devotion, so God can build on what he wants to do here. The cleansing that came in the end of chapter 32 was swift and it was strong. And the people are restored in covenant at the end of chapter 32. It's beautiful. So be honest today. No excuses, no rationalizations. Final step of freeing ourselves from idolatry is this. Do whatever it takes to replace that idol with the one true God. Whatever it takes to replace that which you're giving your attention, devotion, affection to, replace that with the one true God. Remember that chorus? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's true and it works. The thing that makes us vulnerable to idolatry is we begin to think God is far away. And I believe some of you came to this prayer conference thinking, Lord, I'm just hoping I can reconnect with you. And I'm glad you're here as you're going to. But understand that you're in a vulnerable place when you, when, we, when you begin to think that God is far away. Here's the thing about Exodus 32. is When the people saw Moses had delayed in coming down, they interpreted that Moses was gone and so was God's presence gone. But at the, at the very moment that they were thinking that God's presence was withdrawn, God was given Moses on the top of the mountain, remember? At the very moment they think God's presence was gone, God's given Moses directions for the covenant that will forever tie him to these people. At that very moment. They were so wrong. They had it completely wrong. What their, their thought, their thinking process was not lining up with reality. God was not gone. He was actually closer than ever at that moment. No matter how they felt, he was closer than ever at that moment. He's not far away. He's very close. And so here's what I want to finish with tonight, guys, is this. Stay at the foot of Mount Sinai. 
And no matter how you feel, no matter how, if God feels far away, that is not reality. That is not reality. The reality is this. He is very, very near. He's very near. And if I would just continue to stand on that place and worship him and him only, no matter how I feel, realizing everything else is counterfeit, every other substitute is a liar, and my heart and devotion is to him and him alone. There is no other. There is no other. And then he's going to take us where he wants us to go. What I'd like to do, I don't invite Karen up here for just a moment. There's a song that's been a favorite song of mine for decades. Some of you remember the Keith Green song, My Eyes Are Dry. My eyes are dry, my faith is old, my heart is hard, my prayers are cold, and I know how I ought to be alive to you and dead to me. But what can be done for an old heart like mine? And this is the beautiful part. Okay, soften it up with oil and wine. The oil is you. Your spirit of love, please wash me anew with the wine of your blood. I just want to invite everyone to stand here for a moment. And I'm going to ask Karen just sing that song. But as we start this journey together, and we are going to on journey, is we just want to, Father, we just want to say we don't want any idols. We don't want anything competing with our affection and our devotion, our attention to you, Lord. Lord, we, a, lot of, a lot of us came from school and work and hard days, and we're trying to get in sync. And, Lord, we just want to right now just totally cast every idol out, everything that has competed for our attention and devotion, affection of you. Lord, we want to cast down the idols. And Lord, we're asking you tonight to just pour over us cleansing as we repent. Pour over us cleansing and filling, renewing. Lord, cause that passion to burn in every heart, Lord, again. That smoldering wick, Lord, would you begin to fan that? So during this ministry time, as Karen leads this song, I just want to invite you just... Those of you who said that if the Lord showed you an idol, just make this a point to repent and be deliberate about it. And no one's going to ask you to tell you the story just between you and him, but use this as an altar right now and just say, Lord, I'm casting this idol down. I want nothing between me and you. So as, we, as, as he leads us in this song, just, just, ask, just, just confess that before the Lord. And then I just want to pray for just a fresh outpouring of the Spirit of God in all of us tonight. But let's start with that. Let's just... If there's a sin, if there's a confession of, of just in any idol, just cast it down, but come forward and just give it to the Lord as Karen leads us.
Lord, we thank you for your promise, Lord, as we confess our sins. You're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I just want to pronounce over every one of you who's confessing right now, you are forgiven. In Jesus' name, you are forgiven. We thank you for your forgiveness, Jesus. We thank you for your forgiveness, Jesus. Now, I just want to invite some of you to come up and just lay hands on everyone that's up here. Just come and slip out real quick. Just come lay hands on him. Come on, we need a lot of folks up here, so slip out and just come on up here. Don't leave anybody by themselves up here. Come, Holy Spirit. We pray for a fresh outpouring, Lord. Fresh outpouring of your Spirit. Come. Just fill us up, Lord. Fill us all up, Lord. Let your Spirit come. Fresh anointing, fresh oil. Fresh oil, the psalmist said, Lord, give me fresh oil. Fresh oil, fresh anointing, Lord. We love you, Lord. Lord, we even give you our disappointments, Lord, because we know that you got something better. We trust you, Lord, that you're not through and you got something better. If you didn't answer in our, in our, in our, our way, in our time, you're going to do it a better way at a better time. Lord, we trust you with that. We give it all to you. Fill us up. Fill us up. Lord, we thank you for all you're going to do for the rest of this conference, how you're going to continue to just really draw us into being those kind of watchmen on the walls, Lord, who, who, aren't, who aren't, don't have any other idols, who aren't, given our, aren't divided hearts but are fully yours to this task that you're calling us to. We pray for your anointing on all the other messages, Lord, that you would just really line us up with what you want to accomplish in our lives now. Lord, I pray, Lord, that for, for all of us as we go home, that you would give us great sleep, that you would speak to us in dreams and visions, that you would make us this prophetic people, Lord, that you've called us to be. And we just pray, Lord, that you'd have your way in every life. In the name of Jesus.